0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health & Living with me, T. Ik. While vapes and e-cigarettes were initially marketed as a potentially safer alternative to traditional tobacco smoking, Vaping has unfortunately given rise to a new and concerning public health issue, and that's nicotine addiction from vape use, especially among young people who have never smoked before. And countries around the world are now grappling with a vaping crisis among children and young people due to the easy ways that young people can lay their hands on vape products, even those containing nicotine. While several key politicians in Malaysia are... Shall we say taking sides on the issue of whether the generational endgame bill is unconstitutional? On the show today, we'll be looking at the rise of nicotine addiction among first-time vape users and the challenges of addressing vape addiction from a medical and social perspective. And joining me for this discussion, Professor Chris Bullen, President of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco and a Professor of Public Health at the University of Auckland. And Associate Professor Dr. Amir Siddiq, Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Coordinator at the UM Center for Addiction Sciences. Professor Bullen and Dr. Amir, how are the both of you? Thanks for joining me today.
1: Very well, thanks. Good, thanks. Nice to be back again. Absolutely,
0: again. <laughs> um, perhaps, um, Professor Chris, you could start us off with an understanding of the effect of nicotine, uh, whether it's coming from traditional cigarettes or vape products. What is the effect of that in the brain and how does it lead to addiction?
2: Right, so nicotine's a drug that unlocks uh, deep within the brain a system that releases dopamine, which um, is a sort of pleasure, pleasurable hormone, if you like, or a chemical that makes people feel a little bit better. Um, and uh, the more you access nicotine, the more receptors develop in the brain. Uh, and so the trajectory of nicotine use te- tends to go upwards from starting off small and, and getting bigger. Um, and when you are then deprived of your source of nicotine, uh, then you can uh, experience craving uh, and other symptoms uh, suggesting a sort of withdrawal syndrome. People feel uh, 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 irritable, um, they may feel hungry. They may um, get headaches. Uh, so it's quite unpleasant. And so the temptation then is to go and have a, find another dose of nicotine somewhere to relieve that unpleasantness, that all of that syndrome. And so that inexorably leads to repeated dosing, often increased dosing over time. Mm-hmm. And depending on the vehicle. Uh, that's delivering the nicotine that could be more or less harmful to the person.
0: Yes, and with, when we talk about a vehicle like um, combustible mm. tobacco products, yep. we know that the harm is primarily um, coming from uh, the burning of uh, the, the ingredients Correct. in the cigarette, right? Can Absolutely. you elaborate a little on that?
2: Yes, so it's the vehicle is primarily the problem. So nicotine's not completely harmless, but the evidence that nicotine in itself Apart from the addiction potential, the evidence that nicotine is cancer-causing or causes heart disease is not particularly strong, but it's all the junk that goes in with the nicotine, particularly in when you're burning tobacco. Um, we're talking about naturally occurring combustion uh, products, carbon monoxide... Um, tar, but also chemicals that uh, the modern tobacco industry adds to make it easier for people to smoke uh, tobacco, to make it sort of slide down the throat a little bit easier. Mm. So these chemicals can be carcinogenic, they cause cancer, they can damage the lungs permanently, uh, they can cause um, uh, harm to your heart. And uh, so that's really the the major problem with smoking is the vehicle uh, in which the nicotine is conveyed. But the other problem, of course, is the addiction to nicotine that develops.
0: Yeah, I mean, Doctor Amir, once you pick up that cigarette and get hooked or addicted, um, it's a it's it's such a huge battle, right? Because we want to protect them from the harms of uh, uh, the tobacco products, and that the products that are being burned, but they're addicted to the nicotine. And uh, Doctor Amir. Uh, In terms of, you know, whatever factors that come into play for an individual, their age of first use, how long they've been smoking, how much they smoke, how does that add to their addiction?
1: Well, I think, uh, again, uh, Chris has done really well in sharing with us a little bit about the dangers of being introduced to nicotine when uh, you traditionally don't need it in in a way. Uh, However, definitely, as we've shared before in the past, Uh, Peer pressure is probably one of the biggest risk factors for individuals to start uh, smoking. Particularly, um, and now more recently, uh, young people are vaping as a result of peer pressure too. The longer that you are using products like this, the more likely that you're going to have difficulties in uh, stopping uh, its use because the addiction becomes more severe. Again, uh, often young people are introduced to cigarettes uh, or electronic uh, nicotine devices at the moment uh, early uh, and therefore there's a potential that their years of use will be longer. uh, And when we see them, uh, if they decide to quit, and again, uh, studies that we've done with the International Tobacco Control Survey uh, showed that probably about 80% of people who smoke um, have reported that they want to quit. But by the time they come to see us, it's a really uh, difficult situation because they would have been older with probably more than a decade or two of uh, using these products. And it just just gets, gets, gets that a little bit harder. Um, also, I think uh, it's important to note that these products are designed to uh, keep you using them. And the availability of nicotine within them, uh, in cigarettes particularly, uh, does not actually help quite a bit. So definitely it's a really big challenge uh, for those who want to change their lifestyle for the better. Uh, and of course for us that want to help them to make that lifestyle change.
0: Um, Professor Chris, from in, the, in that big picture of um, trying to help people to quit smoking, um, you know, what, what's what been that trajectory like, I suppose, uh, you know, if we look at what has been available in terms of treating um, smoking addiction and then how have uh, vape products and e-cigarettes come into the picture?
2: Right, so um, we've had what we call tobacco control strategies for, for many years in most countries around the world. Um, the World Health Organization is just celebrating sort of 20th birthday of the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control, which outlines strategies that are based on good research about what works. One of those is offering help to quit smoking, but the other it should all go together as part of a package, and that includes things like increase making tobacco expensive so that young people can't afford to start smoking and buying it, um, uh, making it unattractive in terms of the packaging, giving plenty of information to people so they understand that it's harmful to smoke, And so on and so forth. So, there's a a handful of well tried and tested and true strategies that every country should be signing up to, but they're not yet. So, that's a big issue at a global level. But the offering help to quit smoking Um, really, the only tools uh, that have been around sort of for a long time have been what we might call behavioral support, sort of psychological support and counselling, which is effective but relatively weekly mm-hmm. effective, more recently in the last 20 or 30 years we've got some products like nicotine replacement patches and gum and lozenges and other nicotine replacement therapies, we call them NRT and then in the last, uh, we've, we've had some old drugs that used to be used for depression treatment that actually have a benefit for uh, smoking cessation, helping people to increase the, quit, the success of a quit attempt and then in the last 10 years we've had a couple of other new drugs sort of hit the market which are showing to be uh, really uh, beneficial because they help reduce the craving mm-hmm. and they also reduce the satisfaction people get from uh, smoking experience if they have a cigarette. Targeting
0: the receptors. Yes,
2: that's right. They block the receptors but they also give a little tweak of uh, the mm-hmm. pleasure. So they kind of have a benefit and they um, they really work very, very well. Um, but again, it, they work better when they Given the context of some support, that could be group-based support or individual support or a text messaging program or something like that, yep. um, and the policy environment is supportive as That's well, right, yeah. so it's harder to buy, it's harder to access tobacco, it's harder to, the tobacco is hidden away from view, the cues to sort of trigger the desire to want to smoke aren't there anymore. Yep.
0: Mm,
2: yeah, and um, e-cigarettes. Yes, e-cigarettes. Now, I wasn't trying to avoid your second part of the question. <laughs> this is more controversial territory. So, e-cigarettes uh, in different countries, there are regulation. Uh, there are more stringent regulations than others. In my country, uh, New Zealand, we are currently embarking on some radical tobacco control policies to get smoking rates down to below five percent within the next few years. So the first of those is to reduce the number of tobacco retailers by 80%. Second is to take all the nicotine out of tobacco, which makes it unaddictive Mm -hmm. uh, and will make, um, we believe, hundreds of thousands of smokers uh, want to quit because they can't see the point. If the nicotine's not there, it won't sustain their addiction. Um, But as part of that, we have to provide excellent support for those people to help them on their quitting journey. And part of the solution, we believe, in New Zealand, and it's supported by our Ministry of Health, is to make a range of quit support products and services available. And one of those uh, is uh, e-cigarettes. So a bit like the UK, we've got a fairly liberal approach, but it's within a framework where there's regulation, there are other strategies at work, uh, and the health sector is is largely buying into the, the approach. So it's not open territory, open slather, It's not cowboy territory. You know, it's a kind of... uh, But it is uh, fairly experimental in the sense of not many countries having gone down this path before to this extent.
0: Yes, uh, we'll get into, unfortunately, how it has become uh, cowboy territory in some markets. Uh, but first we'll go for a quick break. In the studio with me, Professor Chris Bullen, President of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, all the way uh, from New Zealand with us, and uh, Associate Professor Dr. Amir Side, Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Coordinator at the UM Centre for Addiction Sciences. We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Ik. In the studio with me today, Professor Chris Bullen, President of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco and Associate Professor Dr. Amir Siddik, Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Coordinator at the UM Centre for Addiction Sciences. We're discussing vape addiction, both from cigarette and vape use, but with particular concern for first-time vape users, many of whom are, are children, teenagers, young adults, so before the break, Professor Chris was sharing how New Zealand is approaching smoking prevention and how e-cigarettes will play a role in their quit support services. So um, from the perspective of treating smoking addiction and helping people to quit, how should e-cigarettes be prescribed?
2: Well, uh, Australia's decided to make them available only on prescription. Uh, Personally, my personal view, and I'm not speaking for my university or society or anything, my personal view is I think part of the um, benefit is having them uh, reasonably accessible to people and reasonably affordable, certainly relative to cigarettes. I think they should be, because I believe that they are less harmful puff for puff, than a, cigarette, a combustible cigarette, they should be more accessible and less um, uh, uh, expensive. So if you're going to invoke taxation, then I would say you should have less tax on e-cigarettes and more on a more harmful product, a sort of proportionate approach. Uh, but that's not to say they should be available on every street corner, and I think there, there, there are regulations around how they're marketed, uh, the appearance of the products, uh, like in terms of colours that might be attractive to... Non-vapers, young people particularly, the brand names and descriptors. Uh-huh. So I think it's um, incumbent on responsible governments to consider the most vulnerable in society, which would include children, and to try and do everything within their means to try and prevent them being exposed to harmful products. So with regard to e-cigarettes, my view is that they, they, there needs to be regulation. It needs to be... Uh, along the same play lines of what we've seen work for tobacco but I think perhaps not quite as uh, tightly screwed down as with tobacco um, if you can see them as part of the solution. now. I don't pretend to have the answers for Malaysia uh, because you've got a very different history with tobacco. You've got tobacco growing, you've got borders that are contiguous where it's easy to move products across borders. New Zealand's surrounded by over a thousand kilometres of water. Mm-hmm. You know We're in a very different context and our history with tobacco has been one of uh, steadily reducing smoking over many, many years mm-hmm. through all these strategies that have been working. So we're kind of using them at at the last ditch to get across the line. And then we'll have to figure out how to get people off vaping.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, your thought, Dr. Amir, from the Malaysian perspective? Well,
1: no, I think, Chris, you've really uh, put it really in a very clear manner. I think the first thing is that we, we need to reduce people from adopting tobacco use. And we're still not there yet. We still don't have... Uh, taxation or the taxation that we want for tobacco products—we've not had a change in the taxation for quite a while now. Um, so we need to make sure that people who uh, are vulnerable are unable to access uh, cigarettes. We need to make sure that enforcement is there, so that you know there's no, you know, like what Chris had mentioned, body issues where people are smuggling cigarettes in. But at the same time, uh, we need to address the eighty percent of people who want to quit as well. So at one point, you want to make it very difficult for new smokers to come on board. Uh, at the same time, you want to make it easy for people uh, to find help, uh, to be able to access the kind of aids that we have at the moment to assist them in helping. In fact, Shariq, we just recently concluded uh, our Kuala Lumpur Nicotine Addiction Conference where we've had a number of experts also coming uh, speaking about uh, not only the uh, challenges of uh, assisting people to quit smoking, but about issues about accessibility and affordability uh, of these uh, quit smoking products that are available. So at the same time, as we want to increase uh, the prices of cigarettes so people can't uh, achieve them, uh, we also want to hopefully help and reduce uh, the prices of AIDS that are evidence-based to assist provide more training uh, for trainers that will be able to assist in terms of the psychological uh, and counselling support that we also uh, provide for these individuals, um, and and just make it more uh, easy for them to be able to find that help that they need. Uh, I think also, more importantly as well, it's about what uh, was mentioned just now. We we need some level of regulation, uh, especially when you're talking about these new uh, tobacco products, which include uh, electronic cigarettes. You know, it's we've mentioned it before. It's a bit of a wild west at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's really not much uh, going on there. People are supposedly quote-unquote self-regulating, but we know that that's very difficult. You know, they need to be held accountable. Uh, You know, our relevant agencies really need to step up the game in providing some kind of guidance. uh, You know, to make sure that young people who have never smoked, never vape, uh, are not able to reach uh, these products at all. Uh, And then more importantly, to prevent uh, any level of attractiveness uh, in terms of price, colour, shape. You know, we've seen like, you know, little toy looking vape devices out there uh, making it inaccessible. We don't want things like a vending machine being available. But at the moment, to be fair, there's really no law to say that this is not being able to be done. Uh, And I think we need that regulation, uh, which we, you know, sorely are missing at this point of time. Mm.
0: So Prof, um, how would e-cigarettes come into that whole big um, picture of that that would include the uh, uh, supportive policy environment, um, hopefully uh, more affordable access to nicotine therapy, um, you know, replacement therapy and and prescription medicines as well. Um, would, Would you be sort of using them all as as an arsenal
2: right i think they're a tool for some people who have tried all the other standard you know pharmaceutical kind of products and haven't succeeded um they are one way there's certainly good evidence that they are as effective if not more effective than some of these products Um, part of the reason why they are more effective is that people tend to like using them they um when you stop smoking you've got an You don't play around with a cigarette in your hands and mouth anymore. Mm. So, having something to put in your mouth, like a cigarette, but it's different, but still, it replaces some of those behavioural characteristics and rituals that people enjoy about cigarettes and come to be part of their addiction. Mm. So, um, I think that's one of the reasons I've been successful. The other is that broadly, you know, they don't look quite like cigarettes now under their modern. Uh, When we first started looking at these products back in about 2009, 2010, they looked called cigar-likes. They tried to look like cigarettes Mm, in size and shape. But there were miserable failures in terms of the batteries were terrible, uh, the amount of um, solution in them was very small, and they didn't really deliver much nicotine. But the evolution of these products has been incredibly rapid, and now they don't look anything like a cigarette. Um, and what's happened in the last couple of years that I think has really given rise to this increase in young people vaping who've never smoked before, all around the world, regardless of regulation, Uh, has been these disposable e-cigarettes, which I personally believe is a major step backward, and uh, I'm I'm quite uh, strong on um, suggesting they should be banned in some way. So in New Zealand, we're going to make disposable e-cigarettes extremely hard to get and uh, sell in the country by um, requiring uh, there to be no products which uh, have... um, or they will have to have removable batteries. They're an environmental uh, disaster, as well as a, a potentially a, a you know health thing for young people getting addicted, so um, the product is changing. Uh, it's become easier to deliver more nicotine uh, in the newer e-cigarettes. So when I started researching these things over a decade ago, they were a very different product, and I think they were tailored at that time uh, over a decade ago for smokers yeah. as a tool to help quit smoking. Now they're being almost designed and marketed as a lifestyle product that's cool and if you've never smoked, it's okay, take up this cool behaviour and I think that's certainly a very wrong direction to go in.
0: I mean, your randomised clinical trial, I think it was carried out uh, between 2016 and oh, 2018
2: 2011 2013 right but that's okay. and that
0: was the first ever to test yes um you know the effectiveness of nicotine e-cigarettes with nicotine patches yes, as combination right. yeah. nrt but you know you must have concerns now revisiting those clinical findings in light of the wild, wild west that it is now yes
2: i've i've Sort of searched my soul, if you like, on this one, (laughs) because at the time there was no information about these products, literally. There was no published information about what was in them, who was using them, etc. So we scrambled around and tried to build some evidence where there was none with internet-based surveys, with focus groups. Uh, We did some trials comparing them with NRT, as you said. And that trial was quite um, a landmark study in terms of establishing you know, a really robust uh, base. But the product, ironically, that we tested in that trial, by the time we got to publish, that product was off the shelves. It was obsolete. It had been surpassed by a better, if you like, more efficient, different-looking e-cigarette. And then that kind of generation of e-cigarettes has been surpassed by and large since then with these more um, like uh, mini-cool devices that uh, hardly give off any vapour, have much better batteries can deliver nicotine uh, in higher concentrations, etc. So you've kind of got to keep ahead of the game, and it's very hard. It's like whack-a-mole where as soon as you kind of identify there might be a risk and a problem and you've put in place some research processes to understand it, it's gone and there's a new thing that's a new iteration mm. has popped up and we have to kind of jump over to that space and do the same again there. So... Um, I think, you know, I'm a scientist and uh, I was trying to find information to fill an information gap. Uh, I wasn't sort of going into that situation as a promoter of these Mm. products. It's more about saying, well, what's the evidence that they work? Uh, Is there any evidence of their harms? Uh, Just to try and answer some of those basic questions. Mm. I remember
1: that time very clearly, Chris.
2: (laughs) But well, at the
0: end of the day, it's the lack of regulations that yes. has led to the situation we're in now. And the the ones we're concerned with are the young people yeah. who, through peer pressure, have never smoked but are likely to pick up vaping. Yes. What is the likelihood, Dr. Amir, of first-time users who start vaping to progress to cigarette smoking?
1: Well, I know we've, we've had a, a quite a nice debate this morning, actually, myself and Chris discussing about this. But I think, uh, as I shared with Chris, our situation in Malaysia is a little bit different. From the data that we have, number one, uh, we still have a large population of smokers. And we have uh, not the best regulations as we'd like. We've got good ones, but we still can do better. Secondly is for those who are using e-cigarettes, we've got at least about 45% of individuals who are dual users. Uh, And more, uh, I think, uh, more scary at least, or at least something to think about, is a study that we did in 2017 or so. Uh, Among young people in university, about 35% of them reported to have never smoked, but are presently or were vaping at the time when we interviewed them. So we've got that population of individuals that, um, you know, one would worry that they, and as I've shared before, that I've stated it once and I'll state it again, that I was worried in 2015 or so that you'll get a bunch of nicotine um, use disorder individuals who have never smoked, Mm. Uh, and that data has already come out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sadly, you know this is where we need more funding and this is where we need more research. Uh, we couldn't follow up as many cohorts of individuals to see whether this number has increased or not. But definitely, uh, from the Tecma study that they did a bit later, also it was reported around that as well. So we worry that there will be a population of young people who would uh, be addicted to nicotine from e-cigarettes who have never smoked. Uh, and this population would at some point maybe be curious enough, as we've seen with, other, um, with cigarettes and drugs, for example, to maybe experiment. And I think that's the worry because at least 45% of them were dual using. Um, my take on it, uh, going back to the question that was asked to Chris about treatment, uh, you know, possibly if we had more solutions earlier. You know, there, there are some solutions uh, in the present aids that we've got to assist people to quit smoking that are not available in the country. And one wonders if you were to make every available aid, like do you make every available type of cigarette, you know, available in the country, right, menthol, non-menthol, light, non-light, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Uh, One wonders whether you would be able to get more people who smoke to actually quit smoking. And I think one of the gaps, uh, again, that we've noticed is that people use products that are available because there's a a dearth of alternatives. So one wonders if they had alternatives really available, uh, not so easily, uh, not so difficult to access, that you'd get more people to attempt to quit. because. The data about 80% of people who smoke want to quit was something that we noticed in our latest cohort in 2020, but it's also been reported in previous cohorts uh, also in the past. That And we've seen this in other research as well, that a large proportion of people who are present, current smokers, regret smoking, would like to quit. Some of them have genuinely, as Chris had mentioned, probably attempted to use other alternative products that they've read, uh, like e-cigarettes, to do that. It's just that uh, the products are not the same. Uh, and they're getting a bit more challenging in terms of the way that they deliver the nicotine. Mm-hmm. You know, the flavors that are available, the marketing stuff that comes on. And we've said this over and over again: people who are adults that want to quit, they just want to quit. They don't need to have a tutti frutti name. Mm-hmm. They don't need to have a pink, you know, uh, Hello Kitty-looking device. They don't need to have smells of, you know, cherry blossoms or whatever it might be. <laughs> Uh, no names that attract individuals. They just want to use something that be able to quit. So, uh, you know, there probably is a subpopulation of people that have attempted multiple attempts with AIDS that are available. And again, I want to stress that we don't have all the AIDS available. Should they have done that, there might have been less people smoking, maybe. But at the same time, there'll be a subpopulation that no matter what they try, it'll be difficult. Uh, and then I think this population might be the, the group that might require something a little bit more different Uh, And this is where probably some alternatives might be possible. But there needs to be regulation, uh, not the way that's been done at the moment.
0: What are the aids that are not uh, available here now?
1: Well, you know, in terms of the nicotine replacement therapies, for example, we only have the gum and the patches. Uh, They have lozenges for those. So, okay, what's different? So if you had dental issues, you can't take the gum. The lozenges available, uh, it's a quick relief for some individuals. Um, You know, we have uh, in the past a nasal spray, uh, an and inhalator that also might be useful for those who might have issues with no teeth maybe for example uh, more recently uh, we've got a mouse spray that's just come into the country uh, so that might be a game changer possibly uh, in terms of people who like pills for example uh, we used to have one uh, but there's at least two uh, others uh, some of them are delivered only by certain types of doctors, require a little bit more training. Mm. Uh, And what about in terms of the psychotherapeutic or counselling services that are available? Uh, You know, we know about brief intervention. We also know something called motivational interviewing that might be helpful. How many people are trained in these kind of uh, modalities? Cognitive behaviour therapy is another one that's evidence-based. And more recently, uh, in our conference, we've heard about um, acceptance and commitment therapy that's also been used for individuals that are struggling with uh, nicotine use disorder. Uh, so you know if you're, if you're able to provide all of that uh, and they don't work then maybe you'll be looking at like super alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's the way I look at it. But we've not been able to um, deliver that at the mm-hmm. moment. Or if it is available it might not be affordable. So that's an equity issue, right? For those who are smoking as we know from our data, they're going to be from the lower socioeconomic group so there needs to be a little bit more done in that access. So this is the kind of uh, issue that sometimes one wonders uh, about this situation that we're in at the moment and what, what could have been. But we definitely have time to actually rect- rectify that.
0: So e-cigarettes should be sitting at the top of a pyramid, um, only accessible if other methods sort of like aren't working. Yeah,
2: so in a kind of clinical context, if somebody came to see me and said, look, I, I desperately want to quit smoking, can you help me? As a physician, I think I'm ethically bound to do whatever I can with the tools that are at my disposal. Mm. And so I would start off with the evidence-based products that I know are safest and certainly nicotine replacement therapy combination of patch plus gum... Uh, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. cost-effectiveness. I'm thinking also for the health system, um, not particularly expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a patch plus a faster, a shorter-acting nicotine product like the spray or the gum or the lozenge on top of the patches if a person can take the patch and say if someone's got a skin Mm -hmm. problem, that's an issue for them. Mm -hmm. But um, let's say we do that and then if uh, they try and we get it in the right dose to match their previous nicotine intake from their smoking um, and uh, we provide support touch points along the way to motivate them and give them uh, cu- uh, tricks and tips about avoiding prompts that might trigger uh, a craving. How to use these products to deal with acute cravings that they might be feel suddenly desperate I need a smoke. Mm-hmm. You know, reach into their back pocket, have a fast acting uh, product to deal with that. So, these are all the sort of supports that I would offer. Only then, if that kind of first line had failed, and depending on the health situation, so if someone had you know, really unstable heart disease or diabetes, I would be throwing everything I can at, at the book to try because stopping smoking is going to save their life or reduce the progression of their disease. Um, so uh, even if it's quite advanced, it's still beneficial to quit smoking with heart disease, with chronic obstructive lung disease, etc. Even a person with lung cancer gets benefit from stopping smoking. So um, I would, uh, you know, um, then look at the second line agents, maybe the oral medications Mm -hmm. perhaps might be suitable. Um, And then if that wasn't working, if people had relapsed, then we know that a proportion of people had relapsed. And perhaps they've tried and tried again and recycled with these products depending on how things, uh, by negotiation with them, we might look at, Um, products like e-cigarettes for some people and I think in some situations there's an argument to be made for people who are highly dependent on nicotine in certain settings if there's no products that have worked for them and there's a real acute risk to their health then then one could justify that recommendation but the problem is the, the product range is very diverse, mm. so they go from very basic to Rolls-Royce uh, quality mm. and uh, you know everything in between. It's very hard for the consumer or the healthcare provider to know where to go because what is on the label is not necessarily what's in the product. Mm. So this is one of the conundrums, and that's where regulation around quality control um, can be can be beneficial mm. in this that, space. That's,
1: that's a really good point there because mm. we've done some research uh, locally as well in two different universities where we collected uh, electronic uh, cigarette um, juices or liquids um, which have supposedly no nicotine in mm. them um, and they were found to have uh, traces or nicotine in them. So, again, without regulation of any sort, um, you know, uh, definitely we're going to have these kind of questions and I think this is where I defer a little bit from uh, Professor Bullen in terms of can we prescribe them or give them or offer them when there's no regulation and you're not unsure about safety. I think it's going to be a bit challenging in terms of mm. the medical code you know, uh, to, to actually recommend anything uh, which doesn't have some level of accountability. We've talked about accountability as well. When there's no uh, regulation you know, the device itself uh, becomes a problem, the juice itself becomes a problem, the battery itself becomes a problem. There's so many problems that, uh, you know, you need to think about um, when you're using devices like this because, because you don't know what is what is what, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the, that's the difference, I think, in a situation like ours. And I think we have to also remember, uh, and I've been in New Zealand, uh, and when I was training there as well, their environment is so much different. It's so difficult for you to now access cigarettes for example uh, there's so many areas that you can't smoke for example all of this actually helps in keeping individuals who are quit to stay quit yep. and it promotes individuals who consider of quitting to, to make that next step because it's just so it's an environment that's not uh, conducive for those who have this trouble so in a way it's not only the availability of uh, help but it's also the environment that yep. is also helping uh, and that part, uh, I think myself and Professor Chris Bullen on our own can't do that. We can probably help the individual person. I think this is where we really need the help of governments uh, to actually make sure that the laws that they pass, for example, the Tobacco Control Act that they're going to be debating, hopefully very soon, needs to get through because you want to provide an environment that is conducive for people to either quit or stay quit. Hmm. Or never start. Or never, or never. start, yeah. Yeah.
0: And on that note, let's go for another quick break. I'm speaking to Professor Chris Bullen, President of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco and Associate Professor Dr Amir Siddik, Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Coordinator at University of Malaya's Centre for Addiction Sciences. We're discussing their concerns over nicotine addiction among smokers and vape users. Stay tuned to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living. I'm Tishao Ik with Professor Chris Bullen, President of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, visiting us from New Zealand, and Associate Professor Dr Amir Siddiq, Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Coordinator at University Malaya Centre for Addiction Sciences. We've already gone into the regulations and laws surrounding the use of cigarettes and vapes, and uh, we know that in Malaysia... The latter is actually currently not regulated at all. But uh, when we do eventually regulate vape devices, and I have to be optimistic that we will get there. Otherwise, um, it's a very dark place if I think of um, the flip side. But from a regulatory perspective, Professor Bullen, what is an acceptable nicotine level for vape devices?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question because the uh, level of the amount of nicotine a person gets when they puff on a vape is not just the, uh, in regard to the amount of uh, or the concentration of nicotine in the liquid, uh, but also the frequency with which they puff. Uh, And the depth of which they inhale, Mm -hmm. uh, and the power—what we call the power of the device—the ability of the device to uh, create a vapor that people can inhale uh, in a suitable volume for the uh, as as the vehicle for the nicotine to be inhaled. And so there are other factors that are outside of the. what a government can regulate for, they can't tell you how many puffs you take, but they can say uh, there's no more, we, we won't accept any uh, e-cigarettes with more than 20 milligrams per mil, for example. That's what's happened in Europe and the UK. In New Zealand, we're looking at probably 28.5 milligrams per mil as the ceiling. Um, I'm arguing that on prescription, it may there may be a case that on prescription for some individuals who are extremely highly dependent on nicotine, there could be a case made under an extremely controlled uh, way, like a prescription-only way for those individuals to have access to higher concentration Mm -hmm. nicotine products because the problem is if you're highly dependent, you'll keep puffing until you get the fix you need. And so if you're puffing more and puffing more deeply, and then if there's any contaminant in that vapour or any other harmful substance, then you're going to draw that down deeper and more frequently into your lungs. So there's a sort of a a trade-off between... um, those kind of characteristics of, and use characteristics of the product that we need to think carefully about before we sort of just blatantly put a blanket prohibition on particular levels. It's a little bit more uh, complex.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So we're we're in a bit of a perverse situation Where a product that um, could ideally help smokers get off cigarettes uh, Has become a problem for people who had never smoked Um, And I I asked Dr. Amir this the last time uh, he was in Talking about something very similar as well About now treating um, people who are addicted to nicotine through vapes Uh, What's been your experience?
2: Well, we're uh, certainly seeing more people who uh, are addicted to to nicotine through vaping now and who want to stop. So that's the first thing people are recognising. They have got an addiction. We've heard from parents who have children who wake up in the middle of the night vaping, wanting to vape, or first thing in the morning. So these are signs that a proportion of people who've never smoked are now quite heavily dependent, and I think this is largely... Uh, a function of the frequency of or the ease of accessing, you know, high amounts of nicotine very frequently because they're so easy to use. They can be hidden behind a, a book mm. or a laptop, and nobody would notice. The, the The popular media presentation of vaping is large clouds of vapor, mm. yeah. but people don't do that much anymore with these newer products. They're often undetectable, so I think. Um, we, uh, we don't have a, a good evidence base specifically for how to help people quit vaping. There are some studies that have been conducted which show text messaging support for young people in the United States is effective to some extent. There are a number of studies in train, and we've got one study in New Zealand that we start, will start early next year, uh, but it'll take about three years to run. Um, so again, we're on the back foot uh, but I think we, what we do in that space is fall back on what we know from what works for tobacco dependence. Mm-hmm. And we know that if you um, you provide behavioural support, psychological support, either uh, one-on-one or through a group, that can be helpful. Uh, just even a physician saying, look, I'm here to help, how, how can I help? I think it's important for you to quit. That can probably have an incremental, um, you know, a small but beneficial effect. Um, and then one other approach that's been widely used, although there's not a lot of evidence, is what's called tapering, where if someone is taking e-cigarettes with 2% or 20 milligrams per mil uh, liquid, they could drop down to maybe 15 or 10 or whatever, the you know, and just gradually wean themselves off. Um, what we don't want is for those people then to so, uh, go go back to smoking if they were smokers. That would be a really bad consequences. So it's kind of a ha- uh, um, a difficult and fraught journey mm-hmm. uh, for, off these products. Um, the, the other medication that are used for nicotine dependence and smoking, like uh, what's called Champix or Varenicline, mm-hmm. um, these these ones that block the action of nicotine on the brain. Um, I believe they're likely to be very effective in this context as well
0: for young people as well? Yeah
2: I think so it's just about um, what you might be prepared to prescribe at a particular age and when you kind of bring in the artillery or when you start off with the uh, you know a, a sort of a something softer in, uh, initially because mm-hmm. I think the um, you know the time or, uh, with adults who uh, have a, an established health condition that's unstable there's a, a sense of Great urgency yeah. to help them stop smoking. With the young person who's vaping, I mean, there is a sense of urgency, but perhaps you can afford to try a few other things before you invoke the artillery yep. yeah. to try and really. Mm. Okay,
0: uh, help fair them. enough. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, Dr. Amir, I know you share my concerns about this because we spoke about the social perspective mm. of um, kids who uh, are hooked on vaping and how. In Malaysia, at least, we know that in schools, it's treated like a behavioural discipline problem, yeah. just like smoking was. Um, your thoughts, Dr. Amir? I mean, is that really very beneficial from a public health perspective?
1: Yeah, I think, I think this is the other thing that we need to, again, just conceptualise a little bit of the discussion. You know, myself and Professor Chris Bullen are also clinicians. So some of the recommendations that we've been discussing over the last few minutes have mainly been on a one-on-one clinical mm-hmm. perspective. But, for us, on a population level, uh, I think uh, this is where we might differ a little bit in terms of the policies that we have or the or the ends of our ideology in terms of how we might want to help our respective countries when you 've got a situation like ours, uh, then this is where the suggestion of just not having them available at all in the country comes in on a population level right similarly, like to me, another thought would be an individual who you know, um, has chronic pain, and they might be on some medications like opioids. So their prescription medications are given for very specific individuals with very specific criteria to manage their pain. We don't allow, for example, uh, morphine, stroke, heroin to be available everywhere. So in a way that you could still, on a clinical level, be able to utilize these devices for groups that are already addicted to nicotine that have attempted to quit through various means, but it doesn't mean that you need to open up the floodgates to allow um, these products to be available for the population that doesn't have that risk at all. I I think this is another thing, and I think this is where sometimes you forget that you have two groups of people that you're protecting. One is the individual who's really attempting to quit, genuinely tried everything available, known to man, can't seem to quit. There's some evidence to suggest that this might help. You go in this direction. It's a very small group of people. At the same time, you've got a large population of individuals. So if you look at smoking in terms of prevalence, we're seeing something like 21.3% of Malaysians who smoke. The rest of us don't, right? The rest of us don't. If you're talking about vaping, probably that number is just a little bit uh, higher, if not the same. The most of us don't. Mm. So why do you make uh, things like cigarettes, electronic cigarettes, that are risky to the population, widely available, uh, when at least for e-cigarettes, they might be useful for a subpopulation, why don't you just cater to those subpopulation? I think this is where we might differ a little bit in the way that we think about the problem because our country is a bit different. Mm. I think Chris has highlighted the differences between our countries, uh, not only in terms of their geography, but in terms of what's available uh, in terms of the policy as well. Um, so I think this is where that concern is. And I think when we talk about uh, our concern about young people, which I really uh, am perplexed as well, is young people who by right below the age of 18 should not be smoking or vaping, should not be, because that's what the law is at the moment, at least for smoking. Why are we even considering to allow them to think that they might be able to? And this is where the Generation Endgame, I think, needs the support of everyone uh, available uh, because it's of concern. And again, let's just reiterate the numbers. Whatever uh, amount that you get from tax, you're going to be spending a lot more on um, health as a consequence of smoking. If you talk about morbidity for every person that dies uh, from cigarette smoke, often you talk about three other individuals who are struggling with a comorbidity due to cigarette smoking. Um, for vaping, that number is not really known and we were discussing about this just now probably we need to follow a group of people who are exclusive vapors never smoke in their life uh, and see how that that's going to go but then again, from our uh, history with tobacco it took about 50 years before we actually were very conclusive that it's really, really um, harmful so... You know, for for individuals that don't have that risk, why, why are we even providing that risk for them? And then what, waiting another 50 years to see, oh, we, we did something wrong? I think this is the argument that we've seen a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations and groups of tobacco control fighting for. Now, um, on my side, like I said, I, I do a lot more clinical work. So I, I look at it from a different point of view, but I understand and appreciate their concerns. And I think what we're seeing... Uh, reported by parents in the work that we do on advocacy for young people and teachers is the one that you're concerned as well, where we're seeing younger, younger individuals having access to this treatment with no control at the moment, uh, struggling, sadly, with addiction to nicotine early by no fault of their own, actually. Uh, And now we have to probably at some point deal with them uh, and you know when when they when they come out for help, and yeah. they will come out for help at some point of time. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, can I just add that I broadly agree with um, Dr. Amir there. Um, I think the point about how we s- uh, approach young people who are uh, vaping in schools, for example, we should move away from being punitive to recognising, as he said, um, this is not not necessarily a sort of uh, something that we should blame them for and therefore um, uh, harm their educational uh, prospects. Uh, prospects. The future. Mm. So I think a supportive, uh, not supportive of the vaping, but an environment which is supportive of change mm. and helping them through their addiction Uh, rather than being punitive, Mm. is going to be the way through. Otherwise, we'll drive it underground. Exactly. Which has been, you know, the history of other products in the past and behaviours has has not gone well when we've done that. So I think we do need to look at other examples of how to handle this. And um, and while there is concern and it's right to highlight the concerns, um, I think we just have to be careful about the uh, approach we take to punishing young people or impairing their prospects of having a good educational experience.
0: Mm. Can we wrap up with, um, I think, a, a view that we can take forward, mm. on that bigger view of tobacco control and addressing how we still haven't really done much to help the 21.8% of Malaysians who, who are smokers, right? Um, what would be your takeaway for us, Prof?
2: Well, I would say you've got the rule the, the recipe book for how to do tobacco control is already there. It's the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control. And you're a signatory to that Framework Convention. So I would argue it's time to get serious and uh, for legislators to put in place the policy environment that will make it easier for people who smoke uh, to be motivated to quit and to have the support they need to quit smoking. That's my number one uh, recommendation, mm.
1: Dr. Amir. Well, definitely, mine would be the same. Uh, again, we're going to be debating the Tobacco Control Act. You know, you know, I would expect and hope that our respective representatives, um, you know, doing their job in Parliament, would do the right thing in helping Malaysians and protecting their health. For the individual and parents uh, out there, you know, if your child uh, and yourself have not started smoking or vaping. The advice and the strong advice is never start. You know, One of our discussions that we've had over the last few minutes is really about how difficult it is to help people to quit once you've started it. Mm. And for those of you who are smoking or vaping and you're starting to contemplate or seeing some signs in yourself, uh, it's really a good time to quit at any point of time. Uh, you know, no matter how old you are, uh, no matter how young you are, quitting is definitely going to be the best thing that you can do for yourself, not only for your health, but also for your wealth. Absolutely.
0: Uh, You you can save your pockets a lot as well, can't you? Thank you so much for the discussion today, Professor Chris Bullen, Professor of Public Health at the University of Auckland and Associate Professor Dr Amir Siddiq, Consultant Psychiatrist and Chief Coordinator at the UM Centre for Addiction Sciences. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.